Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. It's good to be back. This is Kent Dobson. I've been gone for a couple of weeks, or at least away from the podcast, Mike, so thanks for your patience. It's been an interesting couple of weeks. I was out in Joshua Tree National Park with my uh, guide training program at Animus Valley Institute, which I've mentioned before. You can check it out online. This uh, training was in deep imagination or sometimes called active imagination. So um, five days of, of intense um, deep dive into uh, the gift and mystery of the human imagination. And, and more than that, offering our attention to the wild world. Joshua Tree is an absolutely amazing place. I hope you get there someday. I was in the southern part of the park and there's zero light pollution. And it's just the va- this vast desert landscape, high desert landscape, probably maybe 3,000 feet, maybe 5,000 feet. I actually don't know. And uh, the the land itself is, is filled with boulders and uh, granite boulders. And sort of worlds within worlds. That's what one of my teacher like one of my teachers likes to call it. Worlds within worlds within worlds. Where around each rise is is almost like a little mini ecosystem. And there's something about being in the desert that I think is so good for the human soul and for the imagination. So anyway, that it's been um, that was a real gift. And uh, my daughter was in Southeast Asia for the semester. She's a high school graduate and did a sort of uh, gap semester uh, with a, a program. And so she was in Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand. So that was a crazy adventure. So it was so good to have her back and to celebrate Thanksgiving. So I hope your holiday was, was good. Um, you know, Thanksgiving is like one of those things that people joke about as being uh, sometimes particularly difficult because of the stories and family tensions and, um, or like Brene Brown says, the story, she likes to ask the question, what is the story that I'm making up? Well, just before Thanksgiving, I make up about a hundred stories about what's going to happen and what people have been up to. Uh, but, but this year there were fewer because it was just my wife and kids and, um, it was quiet and, really life-giving in a way. So it's good to be back. Um, I, here's, the, here's the title of the podcast. The earth is flat. So hang with me. That's where we're going. I want to talk about this idea and actually more than that about conspiracy theories in general. I, I did a talk at C3, which is where I teach half the Sundays a year. It's a, a little um, spiritual community here in Grand Haven, Michigan, and I did a talk on the same title. So I, I want to, I felt like I wasn't done and there are some other areas that I want to explore. So maybe this is part two, although I'm sure I'll repeat some of the common themes that were in the, in the talk, The Earth is Flat, because I don't know, there's something really interesting about um, the world that we live in when it comes to truth and the pursuit of truth and the suspicion of truth and the suspicion around facts and fake news and opinion and 
the capacity now to bolster an ideology using Google. Meaning, I have a certain framework and way of viewing the world, and I can find almost a bottomless pit of support for whatever my ideology is. I, and, and sort of anything that flies in the face of that, I can consider fake or false or misleading. So, I don't know, it's a strange time. It's almost like the architecture of information is um, unraveling or is porous or is no longer trustworthy by massive amounts of people. So something's going on here. And, and I also feel like there's a tremendous rise in conspiracy theories on the right and the left. Although someone was arguing with me after the service on Sunday that those on the right are more prone to, to conspiracy theories. I don't know. Um, I think it's an interesting question because we know from brain science that kind of right and left orientation is, is really a matter of brain science. It's, it's, that's the latest information, meaning about half the population, their, their disposition is toward, to, is toward the notion of conserve and preserve and protect. And that is an absolutely needed survival uh, strategy. And it's how we got here. None of us would be here sitting, you know, um, in a relatively functioning vehicle, <laughs> if you're driving right now, or able to turn on the tap without the, this impulse to conserve and to protect definitely needed. And about the other um, half of the population, we would say, is toward openness and um, new information or innovation, we might say. This might be a little bit of an unfair caricature, but you get where I'm going. This is brain science. This is how people, are, and, and a great podcast for this uh, Hidden Brain, NPR podcast, did something on the right, and what did he call it? The, the red and the blue brain. It was just sort of a summary of some of the basic uh, findings. And anyway, we, we can hook people up and see how their brains are uh, react to circumstance. So, I think this is incredibly important information. I'm already down a rabbit trail, so forgive me. But this is really important because I think as a progressive person, whatever that means, I tend to be politically more on the left or more progressive, although now I'm not really sure what that means anymore. Um, but I have to admit, that's probably just the way I'm oriented in the world. But there was a time when I thought it was superior that everybody moves from conservative to liberal, but I'm not so sure. I think um, the capacity to conserve and protect is needed, and the capacity to innovate and change and an influx of new is needed. And when those two things are in sometimes tense discussion, dialogue, um, the coincidence of opposites, to quote the mystics, that's when I think uh, the possibility for the third emerges. So anyway, why was I saying all that? I was saying all that uh, because, oh, I know. I think the right and the left have their own versions of conspiracy theories. And maybe we'll get into some of those as the podcast proceeds. And maybe at Thanksgiving, you heard a few. You heard a few uh, conspiracy theories and like, what the hell is going on? Um, and, 
Yeah, so that's the terrain that I'd like to roam around today. Hey, couple immediate things. If I get this podcast up in time, I'm going to be in Denver this weekend. I'm going to be teaching at my friend Michael Hidalgo's church. I think we're going to do a podcast together too. I'll be on his podcast, so you can check that out. Um, it's called Denver Community Church. There are two campuses, one downtown Denver and the other in, in a place called Wash Park, or I think that's how you say it. Um, I've taught there many times. He's a close friend. We were, we were like blood brothers in junior high. We literally cut our hands and shook hands on it. Um, and we've been friends ever since. So I'm going to be out there teaching at his church. I'm also going to do a day retreat. I was going to do an outdoor day retreat on Saturday, but thankfully Denver got absolutely slammed with snow, which is good for skiing. So I'm going to move that day retreat indoors. I want to uh, do something that I call Wild Soul. I'll explore a little bit of the terrain of Bill Plotkin's book, Wild Mind, but also just talk about um, what is the soul and uh, how, what are... What are some nature-oriented ways of thinking about the psyche? And what does uh, growth look like uh, in the 21st century? Anyway, that's kind of the train of the, the, the retreat, and there are a couple spots still open for that, but you'd have to Google that um, or look on my Facebook page. I, I made a post about it, um, and there's a way you can sign up. So I think that's it for um, tiny ads. Oh, speaking of not having ads, thank you to my Patreon supporters. I continue to get a few here and there trickling in. I just, I, I, I'm really grateful, honestly, that a few of you have said, hey, we like your podcast and we're willing to, to support it. So um, yeah, thank you. And just a quick word to my Patreon supporters, please, through the Patreon site um, and through the email exchange that that we have going on, please send me your questions. I'm starting to make a list. I think I want to do a podcast just on questions, and I'm going to start with my Patreon supporters. So anything and everything is fair game. Not that I'm going to use it every question, but it will at least inspire me and um, and I don't know, challenge me to. I love questions, so um, send them to me. So thanks to Patreon supporters. If you want to become one, Patreon.com slash Kent Dobson is a way to do it. All right, let's start with a quote from Buddha. And my expertise, I have to admit, is historical Jesus stuff. And I know how difficult it is to, to name, and I'm using scholarly terms here, what is an authentic saying of Jesus and what is a, a couple of steps removed from the mouth of Jesus, run through a certain theological lens of the gospel writers. And that's, that's uh, Jesus seminar stuff. And so I'm about to share a quote with you from Buddha. And I did a little research on the quote because a friend of mine was suggesting I do some research on it. And it's of the same variety. Does this really go back to Buddha? Um, and especially you'll hear at the end something that sounds almost a little too modern to be Buddha. So I have my suspicions up, but it doesn't matter because I think the basic orientation of the of this quotation, it sets the tone for um, what I want to talk about. So here's the quote from Buddha. Do not believe anything simply because you have heard it. Do not believe in anything simply because it is spoken and rumored by many. Oh, man. Talk about a needed uh, correction right now. 
Do not believe in anything because it is found written in your religious books. I, I mean, it's amazing that um, I know some people don't think about um, Buddhism as a religion per se. I think it probably is because I, what I mean by religion is um, the pursuit of ultimate meaning. So in that sense, definitely religion. But um, I think it's amazing that the Buddha, <laughs> the, the, the center of Buddhism says, don't, don't trust religious books. In other words, he's saying, I mean, in a way, if you're reading this, he's saying, uh, don't believe it. He goes on, do not believe in anything merely on the authority of your elders and teachers. Wow. I mean, talk about the emergence of maybe what Jung would call individuation uh, or, the, or the rise of, of individual autonomy, what, 25, 2300 years ago, something like that. I mean, hmm. Do not believe in traditions because they have been handed down for generations. But after observation and analysis, this is part of the quote where I think some liberties are taken, but after observation and analysis, when you find that anything agrees with reason and is conducive to the good and benefit of one and all, that's very interesting, to the good and benefit of one and all, that's a little bit of that um, bodhisattva vow, if you've heard of that notion, where, where um, one refuses enlightenment until everyone is enlightened. That's a way of saying it's not just about your personal journey. It's about the collective, and they're intertwined together. So what is good, um, uh, what is co uh, conducive to the good and benefit of one and all, then accept it and live up to it, which is way different than saying just accept it. <laughs> accept it and live up to it. So I'm, I'm putting that out there because uh, we're going to go down a trail here of talking about uh, conspiracy theories and the modern confusion about a word like truth, which uh, the postmodern milieu says is simply a social construct, um, except when it violates their own social construct, and then <laughs> then then that's problematic. So um, yeah, just just keep these words of Buddha sort of floating around somewhere in the back of your, your consciousness and, and ask, I mean, maybe the question is, after hearing Buddha say something like this, um, what is my posture toward truth, toward the pursuit of truth, toward the collection and gathering of evidence and facts and using reason, and um, even toward my own intuition, my own suspicions, my own um, hunches and guesses and gut feelings, and what is my posture toward the pursuit of the true and the good and the beautiful, rather than how do you find it exactly? So I'm sort of giving away already where I think um, the invitation for growth is, and that is toward a certain kind of posture. So why am I talking about the earth is flat? Okay, so uh, not that long ago, I was with some distant relatives, and one of the relatives, a little, uh, a boy, maybe six, seven, um, saw my daughter drawing a picture, and he said, what's that? And she said, it's the earth. And he said, well, no, it's not. The earth is flat because my daughter had drawn a round earth. And 
I thought, mm, this is going to be interesting. And so then <laughs> this really smart little kid started to take a survey of those who were nearby this conversation. Who believes that the earth is flat? A sort of show of hands. I remained somewhat a neutral <laughs> because I, I wanted to hear more like um, of where this thing was going. And then he said something interesting. He said, um, now, don't look on your phone because it's going to tell you a bunch of lies. I thought, hmm, okay. Now, first of all, I mean, you have to ask, where is he getting this stuff? Parents and teachers and what kind of uh, worldview is, is feeding this? Um, but it was interesting to me because he had a kind of, as we all do as children and maybe even as adults, there's a kind of uh, simple innocence in accepting what one has been told and, and even being given tools to defend what one is told, even from a young age, because maybe that's just part of being uh, growing up. And this is going to sound like the opposite of what you might assume, but a healthy childhood does consist of some borders and boundaries and some, some logic and a worldview, we might say. A completely porous worldview that says there's no truth out there, it's all a matter of, um, of just perspective, and I don't know how secure that is to the childhood psyche. So, definitely, he's growing up with a pretty secure psyche. The trouble is going to come, um, probably, as with all fundamentalist beliefs, when the overwhelming evidence begins to mount, and let's say this kid falls in love with a girl that believes the earth is round, then all of a sudden, not only does all hell break loose, but the possibilities of an entire worldview and rejection of that worldview begin to emerge, which happens with a lot of fundamentalists. It happened with me in a way. One small crack in the foundation and the whole, the whole dam bursts. Um, so anyway, how interesting. And I, I did like... Um, just like some research. I don't know if you really want to call looking on my phone research, because if you look on your phone, you'll discover lies, which I thought that was out of the mouth of babes. That is the truth, what this kid said. Just because you Google it, you know, doesn't mean it's true. And we know this now. We know this from this like craziness with Facebook and Russian ads and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But also just in the nature about how algorithms work. And you get stuck in a kind of uh, echo chamber or loop, which is what I was talking about on the last podcast I, I made. And based on your interests, your tastes, and your beliefs, and that even if it's what we would call misinformation, even if that's what it is, or what we could, we could just say false, it's going to come back around in your echo chamber supporting your worldview. This is the way algorithms uh, uh, tend to work. So, here are like a list of popular ones. 9-11 is an inside job. And um, one of the things that I kind of um, was learning a bit about conspiracy theories and how they're formed is that it's not a true conspiracy in the sense of there's a group of five people behind closed doors that dream this up and then spread the information because they have some sort of agenda. That's a that's like kind of how a political conspiracy works. But the way modern uh, conspiracy theories tend to work is a little bit different. So I like to imagine it's like a constellation where there are certain... Um, 
stars that are appearing, meaning facts or ambiguity around details. And as more of those are formed, something like a constellation appears and it has a certain shape. And suddenly you're able to say, aha, I see um, the truth here, or I'm convinced that the status quo and the man is feeding me false information. And I can see how um, these points of data create a certain pattern. So it's like a constellation. And then you begin to sort of, I suppose, believe in the constellation. So here are a few more. Princess Diana, these are some of the most popular ones. Um, the, the, the belief in subliminal advertising, um, which kind of makes me laugh because advertising is meant to dupe you. It's not like, uh, it's not even subliminal. It's like blatant. It, it is doing what people say subliminal ads are doing, but it's doing it consciously, in, sort of in my view, but that there's some nefarious underground subliminal um, messaging happen. And on the surface, it's a car commercial, but underneath it's something much more uh, devious. Um, the moon landing, one of my favorites. And, the, and let me just ask you a question. Let's just take the moon landing. So the moon landing conspiracy is that it was filmed somewhere in Nevada or something, and um, we couldn't possibly uh, achieve such uh, a momentous feat in such a short amount of time. And it was really about a competition with the Russians, which, of course, it was about a competition with the Russians. And the thing about it is if you just take it on the level of plausibility, <laughs> and a friend of mine was, was uh, pointing this out as we were talking about the moon landing, he's like, hey, which, are, which is more plausible, that a really good director from Hollywood and um, a black and white camera went to the desert and filmed something that looked like landing on the moon with dust and a flag and uh, so forth and so on, which is more plausible. Um, or, or I should say, which is easier, <laughs> that, or to get in a metal tube and be rocketed up to outer space through the atmosphere and then to, to come... Um, to detach from this metal tube in a little space pod and float down to the Earth's, I mean, to, excuse me, to the moon's atmosphere and get out and walk around and take measurements. I mean, which is, which is easier? Well, it, that's a given. The Hollywood version is easier. And, um, and you also have political will behind the conspiracy theory, meaning let's appear to be more advanced than our enemies. Not that I believe that, but I just think how interesting. Um, that's partly how conspiracy, that's partly what is attractive about a, a conspiracy theory. And of course, other ones are like Paul McCartney died in 1966, all the stuff around um, JFK and his assassination, the Roswell crash hidden in Area 51. Um, some of the more uh, scary ones are like the Holocaust Um it didn't actually happen. And actually, there are several different versions of that. Um, uh, satanic cults. This was huge in the 80s. I don't know. I, I mean, I grew up in, again, uh, Baptist fundamentalism, and we were really terrified of sat satanic cults. I remember even late at night at camp, Baptist camp, sitting around being told like really horrifying stories about satanic cults and how they abducted people and did seances on them and then demons would enter them. I mean, it was just like some scary ass shit um, that definitely worked at camp when the lights are off at 11 o'clock. But just this belief that there are 
really devious groups out there bent on causing your harm, and they're just around the corner, and they're likely to put razor blades in your uh, Snickers bar at Halloween, so be careful. So Big Pharma is another huge conspiracy rabbit hole you can go down. And and let's just say something about Big Pharma. Um, do Is there evidence, and overwhelming evidence, that certain medicines have consequences that Big Pharma hid? That is the absolute truth. Like, what's that movie, Aaron Brockovich? Um, I don't know if that's Big Pharma exactly, but, but, but the idea that the industrial growth machine produces products that appear to be healthy, but they have a dark side, that is a common theme. Although, we could also say one of the reasons why you're listening to this freaking podcast is because of Big Pharma. Things like antibiotics, which I know are, are controversial, and we've saturated our culture with antibiotics, but just dying of a common, common ailments was very common up until the last 50 years, up until the last 100 years. Um, most of the fact that I'm now over 40 years old is um, I've now beaten the odds in terms of uh, life expectancy of human beings from almost all of human history, thanks in part to big farmers. So again, um, always it's evidence and then the how the constellation is formed. And once you've once your psyche latches onto an enemy, then almost no information uh, that counters that is even considered. And maybe I'm already giving away what's happening in the psyche when we're attracted to conspiracy theories. Um, Obama's birth certificate or chemtrails. When I was out in Joshua Tree, um, it was uh, virtually a humanless landscape except for airplanes flying over, leaving LAX or whatever. And, uh, and I just thought of, uh, as I was laying out there, just this idea that, that the government has put into jet engines some sort of substance, some sort of chemical to control the population. That's, that's what the chemtrail thing is about. And it maybe has more nuances than that. Um, but I don't know. A lot of airplanes flying in the sky, you know. Maybe there is a, a deep state, to mention another one, a conspiracy uh, or a deep, uh, a deep state out there that, that is devising ways to control human population. Hmm. It's attractive. So anyway, um, so what do I think is happening? I think maybe is, is the in initial question. So I think if I can say it plainly, conspiracy theories help us avoid the abyss. <laughs> That's what I think uh, is happening. When I say abyss, I mean death, impermanence, ambiguity, and doubt. The underworld, really. The terrain that I'm, um, I wander in most in terms of this podcast and my, my own sort of spiritual orientation at present. The underworld, the unknown, the, the uh, abyss just uh, on the edge. In fact, I, I, um, there's a Terra quote I want to find. Uh, hold on just a second. Okay, I found it. This is uh, Terre de Chardin from the Divine Milieu. I took the lamp and leaving the zone of everyday occupations and relationships where everything seemed clear, I went down into my inmost self. So I might 
add a little interpretation. I laugh the world of ego attachments and personas and Enneagram numbers and um, Myers-Briggs and whatever. And I started going down. I left what was clear and I started going down. I went down into my inmost self to the deep abyss whence I feel dimly that my power of action emanates. So he has a kind of intuition that somewhere in the abyss, there's something of a power that is emanating and he's curious about such a thing. He goes on, but as I moved further and further away from conventional certainties by which social life is superficially illuminated, think culture, think uh, worldviews, think religions, think political ideologies, as I move further and further away from conventional certainties by which so -so social life is superficially illuminated, I became aware that I was losing contact with myself, I might add, with my egoic persona, or just simply with myself. Like, there's a fragmentation, I'm losing contact, and that brings terror, at least it, 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 it does for me. At each step of the descent, a new person was disclosed within me of whose name I was no longer sure. Now, Again, I'm doing a little bit of psychological interpretation. So it's, he's on a descent here, and he's leaving everyday personas, and he's leaving uh, conventional certainties, and he's trying to enter this abyss f- of which um, he has a sense that some power emanates. But on the way, in the underworld, he's meeting persons. He says, a new person was disclosed within me. In other words, maybe what psychologists might call subpersonalities. Um, autonomous, and that's the way they seem, autonomous um, sub-personalities that I encounter along the way. I thought I was this, but it turns out there's something like a person that has means, um, or that has a kind of autonomy, and, um, and, and actually the end of the, quote, uh, the end of the sentence is, of whose name I was no longer sure and who no longer obeyed me. So now we're entering the area of the psyche where the instinctual forces are located. They don't obey the way we like them to. It's like having um, uh, a whole village just beneath our ego awareness that doesn't play by the rules. This is real work. This is real deep psycho-spiritual work. This is the work of transformation. Um, and you begin to encounter these and, and you want to hit something like the eject button and to launch back up to the surface where everything makes sense and I'm sure I know who I am and I'd rather keep these, um, these persons uh, in the closet, buried in the underworld, uh, suppressed. Like if you've ever read the Bluebeard myth, uh, Women Who Run With the Wolves, she's made this uh, popular, but Bluebeard goes away and tells his wife, um, you can go in any room of the house and have whatever you want, but there's one key to a door that you can't use. Of course, you know where the story's going, and she opens it, and inside are Bluebeard's um, bloody 
uh, ex-wives and lovers all in a mash down in there. Now, there's a lot to this story, but in the, the way I'm using it now is that's the door um, that the ego believes um, has to remain locked. And once you open it, it is frightening and there's full of death and confusion and there's blood in there and there's a whole world, there's a whole landscape, but you know that the main character is not going to grow up until she opens that door. So that's a little, I think, of what Teilhard is talking about. So he goes on. And when I had to stop my exploration because the path faded from beneath my steps. So now he's going even deeper into these inmost parts. I found a bottomless abyss at my feet. And out of it came, arising, I know not from where, the current which I dare to call my life. So we're entering a kind of uh, poetic... Um, I, uh, I guess a kind of poetic way of describing what I would call a mystical experience here, entering the inner landscapes, the inner wilderness of the psyche, and passing by our personalities and subpersonalities and forces uh, that we're starting to even lose track of what they're even called who don't obey us. But even beneath that, he says, I've, I came to the edge of something like an abyss that's bottomless, and out of which he has a felt sense that the current of his life, and might, we, we might add the mystery of his life, emerges. That there is a source that um, to, to touch upon and to taste is the real current of meaning, purpose, destiny, what I would call soul, or what we might even call the mystery of God, if you go that far, rising up from within, that it has a kind of eternal essence, I would add to it. And it seems to come from the abyss and return to the abyss in a kind of unfolding current of which I'm just a passing incarnation. So why am I saying all that? Because a conspiracy theory wants to keep us from the edge of the abyss. It wants to keep the world put together in a way that my own ego can understand, can make sense of, can get behind. And nothing feels better, by the way, to the ego than I have the truth and you don't. And all conspiracies, conspiracy theories have that in common. I know something you don't. You think the earth is round? You know, didn't you know that NASA is creating a... a, a um, is putting billions of dollars into misleading you. Um, and really, I know the truth because the truth is in the Bible. And in the Bible, it says there are four corners to the earth. And that's part of the argument of the, fla of the flat earth. And so, therefore, it must be something like a cracker, like a flat disc, and, or maybe it even is square. And it, and it actually has uh, corners. By the way, once I heard that, I did look it up in Hebrew, not, like, I, not that um, I'm trying to be all clever. This is a line in, in Isaiah. Um, but the word is konfot, which is a common Hebrew word. And as you probably know, Hebrew, the Hebrew language is what's considered to be a poor language. And I think it's actually rich, <laughs> but um, poor in that one word can mean several things. And so it can mean corners and also can mean wings, like wings of a bird, konfot. Um, 
And um, I don't think anybody's literalizing that, that actually the earth is just wings, four wings, and we're, we're flying through space. Although I could make an entire theory and start piecing together a constellation of, of facts and doubts, and, and pretty soon then we have not the, flat, the earth is flat, but the earth is uh, a winged uh, being flying through space, I guess, <laughs> flying around the sun. I don't know. Um, that's the problem when we literalize uh, poetry, but nevertheless, it's trying to uh, keep back the abyss. So here's another way of saying it. We construct fantasies and sometimes elaborate fantasies, even if they seem unlikely, in the face of the unknown. We'd rather believe in an elaborate fantasy than face the unknown, than face the humiliation of of our, of our own uh, uncertainties or the humiliation of the smallness of our own way of viewing the world. Even if it's a really difficult truth and like take climate change where it's something like, you know, 99% of scientists agree <laughs> that climate change is real and the degrees to which um, or I should say, it is definitely up for debate, and this is the nature of science, just how bad it's going to be. Anything from bad to apocalyptic, um, but probably not good. <laughs> but there's that seed of doubt in there. There's that one scientist, you know, that questions something using the scientific method. And we would rather believe something like, um, the climate is just fine, and hold on to the fantasy, because it keeps the worldview intact, because it's just utterly terrifying to say something like, I am not in control, and my way of viewing the world might not be right. So, again, why do we do this? Why do we believe in fantasies? And we could even say that's part, a natural part of, of childhood as we confront information and, and, and begin to interpret information and make sense of information. We piece together something like a uh, a fantasy world that has some relationship with what we would call reality, but also has some fantasy elements. We do this because it's a survival strategy, because the unknown is terrifying. And until we have the psychological strength to face more squarely, to square up against the unknown, we need these survival strategies. The problem is they help us survive. And so they're still attractive to adult human beings. And that's why you can be baffled at Thanksgiving dinner that your uncle actually believes this stuff. Like my, like I actually have an uncle who believes that the earth is 6,000 years old. And I, I just, part of me just like wonders like, what? And, and you think, hey, here, you know, here's a pamphlet, brah. You know, just just read. Um, I can take you to sites in Israel that are older than you think the earth is. I can take you to a city wall that is older than you think the earth is, meaning in the city of Jericho. So, but that doesn't matter. All that information can be slotted over toward lies and conspiracy because here I'm saying it's a survival strategy because it's unsafe to the childhood psyche to face, maybe I'm not in control and maybe my ideas are not the right, right ideas, <laughs> or maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, in other words. So I think, I mean, just to give grace to your crazy uncle, it's a childhood survival strategy. And now you must 
ask the question, what survival strategy, strategies are still helping me construct fantasies because I'm afraid of the unknown. Because one of the things that, excuse me, that I think is true here is that we all have some version of the earth is flat. Back to Brene Brown's question, what story am I making up? What constellation am I piecing together because I'm afraid of the abyss? I'm afraid of impermanence. I'm afraid of death. Um, I'm afraid of my own limits. I'm sure I have some version of the earth is flat, even if it's relational in nature, something like the story about the elaborate story you're making up about your boss or about your spouse um, or about your upbringing or about your dad or about, um, I don't know, I, I started listening, I saw a podcast, not a podcast, um, a show on Netflix and it's in a series, but I, I was watching one on the mind, on the brain and on, on memory. And here's just one little statistic. They were saying that that um, in the long-term memory, not the short-term memory, but the long-term memory, we remember something like uh, 50%. We get something like 50% of the details right. I'm like, what? 50% of the details? And you start going through the major stories of your life, especially your childhood stories, and you tell yourself, 50% of what I'm remembering is factual. You know, if I, if I checked in with my brother or my sister or even my parent, I might learn a whole lot more about the, about the landscape of the event than what, what I'm housing in my memory, which easily leads to the story that I'm making up. Now, that doesn't mean memory is unreliable. It just means it's partially unre unreliable. And even that fact is humiliating. And or I should just say humbling in the most general sense. It is humbling. I start going through these events where my mom did me wrong or my dad did me wrong or, or, or even my, my best friend betrayed me. And all of that, I'm sure there's some truth. And then there's the percentage that is not historical. Now, why does, why does the human mind forget? Well, I don't know. We might have to consult the Greek underworld in the river of Hades. Uh, in the underworld, there is the river of forgetfulness. And, and Plato says, everybody must pass through the river of forgetfulness into the underworld, into Hades, into the realm of the dead, because it's just too much. I mean, that's my, my way of interpreting that. It's too much. If we remembered everything, we would be absolutely buried. And I think um, back to a, a quick conversation about their survival strategies, they get formed because of two dominant um, experiences, overwhelmment and abandonment. That's what psychologists like to call them, overwhelmment and abandonment. And out of those two experiences or a combination of both of those experiences, we develop our survival strategies. And um, when you think about even a conspiracy theory, both of those things are true. Overwhelmment and abandonment. Like, take the earth is flat. I'd rather believe the earth is flat and it's 5,000 years old and God made it poof out of nothing and it's all going to be fine because it's absolutely overwhelming to confront the alternative and the sheer vastness of space and time and 
the tiny, tiny, tiny nothing speck that the earth is in the global, I almost said global universe, whatever that is. I meant in the universe, whatever that is, or the multiverse, if you want to get into uh, theories about the universe. I mean, it's just absolutely mind-boggling or abandonment. I can, the same information can lead to, I've been abandoned and nobody told me the truth. And that terrifying childlike sense, like one time I got lost in the mall, you know, just like utter terror of abandonment. And out of that springs um, our survival strategies. So yeah, you have some conspiracy theories. Yes, you have some version of the earth is flat. But the question is, as you mature, if you want to mature, if you want to transform, what would it look like to begin asking questions like, what story am I making up? Or begin to have a certain posture toward my own beliefs and ideas and cert certitudes. What would it look like to open up, um, to tiptoe ever closer to the abyss out of which the current of my life flows? What would it look like to, to light a lamp um, as Teilhard says, and begin to descend. I'm telling you, that's real courage. That's real courage to begin to examine your own worldview. Not because uh, it's just a simple matter of swapping it out for a new worldview. Like, oh, I don't like, like this one. I was lied to and I'm going to get a better one. But um, because the real path of transformation begins to uh, unfold as you light a lamp and descend, something like that. And um, one, one other thing that I think is worth saying, and I, I've tried to say this in, in previous podcasts or, or at least in my teachings at C3, because I don't think it's to be underestimated. I remember um, joking with somebody that I knew more about the cultural background of the New Testament than Paul. Um, because on one level, I do. I have access to anthropological um, data and archaeological data and um, uh, the socio-political landscape that Paul was moving around in, which, of which he was just embedded in. 2,000 years of, of history, I have the advantage of hindsight and contemporary historical critical scholarship and a master's degree and whatever, whatever. It sounds silly. I mean, I kind of said it as a joke, but um, my, my point is we have access to more information than has ever existed in human history. And I know information is not enough. It's not the same as wisdom. Facts is not the, are not the same as wisdom. And, and what we really need is wisdom, I agree. But in terms of information, what is stacking up is becoming increasingly more and more and more overwhelming, <laughs> or we can even experience abandonment in the face of just, like I was saying before, the sheer size of the universe. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Bill Bryson's book. Um, I think it's called a brief history of nearly everything. He says if we were to shrink down the size of our galaxy, the Milky Way, to a size of a pea. So imagine that. I was just out in Joshua Tree and I could see the Milky Way. And it's like, um, and the stars were so bright, I had a hard time making out constellations until the moon came out. I mean, that kind of just sheer 
beauty of the night sky. And so let's shrink down the galaxy, the Milky Way, um, to the size of a pea. And if we could shrink down all of the known galaxies, which is a bit of a mathematical, um, it's mathematical terrain here, but what we think we know about the universe and the number of galaxies, let's shrink them all down to the size of a pea. It could fill up Wembley Stadium, he says, all those peas. And what, what the hell are we supposed to do with that? You know, I mean, how do you live? You wonder why nihilism and narcissism are so attractive. Just, oh, it's all meaningless, or I'm just going to get all I can, you know? Because, wow, like, like the Bible says, um, I think it's in Isaiah again, I, I looked up at the stars and wondered who created all these. See, that, that, is, that kind of awe we have to has now grown exponentially. And that's true on the macro and the micro level. I mean, what's going on in, in down on the subatomic level of your own being? The fact that you contain particles that came from the Big Bang. What are you, what are, what are you supposed to do with that information? You know? I mean, seriously. And there are particles in your body that will outlive you. Now, you, th you might laugh at reincarnation, but something like that is a scientific fact. You're, a new constellation of your own particles will outlive you. Now, what form of consciousness will, will there be? I have no idea. So, these kinds of things, they're just stacking up. And history and evolution and human evolution and, um, and, and now what we're coming into greater contact with when it comes to the environment and how interwoven it is. I mean, just read one article about fungi and and about how trees communicate underground in a network that is something like the human brain. We're just like, what? I know indigenous cultures had an intuition um, about the intelligence of the earth and lived in a much more sacred reciprocal relationship with the wild world. And, and now we have the, sort of, the, I guess in a way, the scientific backing for such a worldview. We, yes, we live in a deeply reciprocal, reciprocal, uh, reciprocal, interwoven universe that we are just barely, barely starting to understand. And I mean, talk about mind blowing. So there's good reason to come up with fantasies that the earth is flat, that things are more simple. And I think you have to begin to ask yourself, do I want to remain in a childlike adolescent consciousness to my grave? refusing to confront the unknown, refusing to be humbled? Um, or am I going to edge ever closer to the abyss out of which the flow of my own life rises? These are the questions I think. Um, this is the question behind the question of why do people, some people believe the earth is flat or 9-11 was rigged or some such thing? All right, this podcast is long enough. Thanks for hanging in there. Let me end with a, just a few uh, lines from Rilke, from a poem called, um, I think it's called A Man Watching. In fact, 
I'll encourage you to use your phone for good and look up the whole poem. But here's the final uh, couple paragraphs. What we choose to fight is so tiny. God, isn't that true? What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated, as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. If we would only let ourselves be dominated, as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. Think about Teilhard saying, entering deeper down into the abyss where names uh, were no longer relevant. He says, when we win, it's with small things. Now think about our, our cultural political obsession with winning on the right and the left, you know, especially Trump, you know, just like so-and-so is a winner. Yeah, when we win, it's with small things. And the triumph itself makes us small. So-and-so is a winner. So-and-so is always winning. It makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us or by our theories or fantasies or conspiracies. I mean, he says, the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament when the wrestlers' sinews grew long like metal strings. He felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music as if a wrestling match is like playing a harp. Whoever was beaten by this angel, whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand. Whoever was beaten by this angel went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him like bread, like needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man, or winning does not tempt that woman. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. That, my friends is my prayer and hope for me and for you <laughs> to be defeated by that harsh hand of reality, of the abyss, of the mystery, of the unknown, and to grow um, and, be, and be needed by the harsh hand into, into uh, a new shape, perhaps something of the shape you were always meant to take. And what would it look like to walk bravely into the wrestling match where you know only defeat will bring about the kind of transformation that we really desire? Thanks for listening.